Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are coming out of a collection of laws. Mishpatim means laws. It's a category of laws. So we are coming uh, out of a discussion, I mean, not a discussion, a, a listing of laws, the last of which is 2319, right, that that they are commanded the Israelites to bring first fruits to the temple, including, right, the first fruit of animals and the first fruit of humans. How is How does this involve the first fruit of humans? It doesn't say it here, but... In other places we get it. What does that mean? The firstborn. Yeah? Firstborn what? Son. They are what? What, what? what happens to them? They're bought back. <laughs> Later they're bought back because the firstborn of humans belong to God. They are supposed to be dedicated to the temple. Just like the fruit, just like animals, the firstborn of humans are to be dedicated to the temple. But later it turns out the Levites stand in for the firstborn, right? So probably a very ancient tradition was that the firstborn was dedicated to some kind of service. Um, and later the Levitical tribe, right, takes the place of those firstborn. So now we have Pidion Haben. We still do this. Some people do Pidion Haben, the redemption of the firstborn, right? Because you, you, you give money over to the temple. Um, now we give it to charity, right? But you give money so that you redeem your firstborn back from service. Unless he's a teenager. <laughs> Unless he's a teenager. In which case you say, Take him, please. Give him back to me when he's a doctor or a lawyer. And I always called it pig in a bin. Pig in a bin. That's a sense. I, you know, when you say the pledge allegiance to the flag, um, when you're a child, mm-hmm. the words get really good. Onions crushed on shoulders. Yes, I I know it well. I'm not talking about the linen. <laughs> Why is it pig in a bin? Rick? Is, is that tradition or ritual anything that any progressive synagogues are trying to do? You know, as we, we realize that life cycle events are such a great way to create community and keep people connected to Judaism. Um, is, is that coming back at all in progressive Judaism? Or is it... It's, it's, I, I haven't, I haven't seen, um, a resurgence, like, of it in progressive communities. I have seen and have been a part of very moving ceremonies in a progressive setting. Like, in Duluth, in my congregation in Duluth, um, one of my, um, congregants was having their firstborn son, um, and, and he was, like, 26 weeks. Like, he was born super early. It was not clear he was going to survive. You know, my first interactions with him were in an incubator with all the tubes and whatever. Um, so it was, so the, when he was well enough for us to do the Pidion Haben, it was really beautiful. The, the family, um, we were all just grateful he lived. And so then we were doing the Pidion Haben and rather, and they gave money to Tzedakah, um, to, to do the actual, you know, exchange. But the, the most beautiful part for me was they talked about what they wanted to redeem their son from. All of the hopes and dreams that we didn't fulfill in our own lives that we're going to put on you. All of the ex- redeeming the child from that. Redeeming him from, right? All, all the ways that we are going to put our expectations about who it is you need to be on you. And so they went through and they listed all the things that they wanted to redeem their son from that they knew, you know, was likely to happen. And it was, it was 
the most beautiful ceremony. So I would love to see more things like that, you know, more ways of reconstructing that tradition. Of- you can make, in contemporary Judaism, you can make these sacred and special moments. And, you know, we're always searching to how to get people back connected. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, well, they have bris, and then we'll see a preschool. You know, and then we'll see at the bar mitzvah, and then we'll see at the wedding. You know, maybe there's a couple things in between where we can create meaning for families. Right. Well, the the pidyon is actually, you know, part of the whole, yeah, kind of part of that whole bris business. Um, so I would like to see a pidyon habat as well, like, right, redeeming the firstborn girls. Um, but yeah, so there, there are lovely ways to, to reconstruct it. But I think... I think the reason it's not taken on more of a life and more energy is because I think people don't know the original enough to reconstruct it. Like pe- people don't know about a pidyon habain in the first place to reconstruct it. So I, I think, I mean, I think that's what's happening. I think most people don't know that they're supposed to do a pidyon habain for the firstborn. All right. Um, so twenty three twenty. We are coming out of this collection of laws. It is very much in the style of ancient Near Eastern law codes to conclude the way that we're going to see here. This looks to us like, okay, why would this be tacked on at the end of a a collection of laws? But this is very common uh, in the ancient Near East as a feature of law codes to conclude uh, with something like this. So we'll look at it. We're, we're coming out of, again, uh, bringing first fruits and not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Hmm. Right? So from that we derive what? Kosher. Exactly. So kashrut around not mixing dairy with meat. This is the This is the only thing we get about dairy and meat in Torah. You shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. That's it. So, um, so this is what we call a fence in rabbinic law. This is called a fence around the law. So this whole business about two sets of dishes, right, comes from a series of fences put around the original law. How do you know, if you're not to see the kid in its mother's milk, how do I know which kid and whose milk? It is. Okay, so so that you don't break this law, we're going to put a fence that says, don't ever, ever see the kid in milk so that you're not going to break this, right? Because you don't know necessarily which baby goat and what milk is the mother. <clears throat> well, what if, right? So, so the more what ifs, the larger the fence becomes. Now we need two sets of dishes. Mickey? At one time, chicken was, uh, not, was cons- not considered meat. Correct. But it got a little complicated, so we built another fence. Correct. So, if, how do I know? It could look like, if I'm eating chicken in a cream sauce, it could look like, God forbid, I'm eating veal, right? So a white meat in a cream sauce, and if the rabbi's doing it, it must be okay. So what do we do? We say, okay, no things that even look like meat can go in dairy. So th- this is a very common uh, rabbinic um, principle, a uh, siyag, a, a fence around the original law. There, there's a joke um, that only we Jews get, but Moshe's on Sinai getting all of this, and, and uh, God says, you shall not, Boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses says, so, no cheeseburgers. <laughs> and God says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moshe says, so, essentially, what that means is we need dishes for meat and dishes for milk. And God says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moshe says, so if you take a fork that's been used for dairy and you use it for meat, then you have to put it in the ground and then you have to boil it. And God says, you know what? Whatever. (laughs) Do what you want. (laughs) All right, let's, let's go to 2320. I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the road and to bring you to the place that I have made ready. 
Pay heed to him and obey him. Do not defy him, for he will not pardon your offenses, since my name is in him. But if you obey him and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I annihilate them, you shall not bow down to their gods and worship or follow their practices, but shall tear them down and smash their pillars to bits. You shall serve your god Adonai, who will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness from your midst. No woman in your land shall miscarry or be barren. I will let you enjoy the full count of your Okay. So, what is characteristic here of, um, as I said, um, ancient Near Eastern law codes? It is this collection of divine promises and admonitions regarding the law. If you do everything I've told you here, then my angel will go before you, you will conquer the land, everything will be good when you get there, what does good look like? You will live to an old age, right? We, we take that for granted, actually. Um, we don't take that for granted. We, we worry about things like cancer, right? You know, we, we worry about certain things, but then, right, living to a ripe old age meant you did not experience war, right? You, you were likely, just as likely then to live to an old age if you survived childhood and you did not know war, um, or plague. Right in your area, so you, you were just as likely to live to seventy. Right, we tend to think, oh, they died at forty. They did not. They lived to seventy and eighty. If right, the, you didn't suffer one of the calamities of the ancient world, which were very common. So to say you will live out your, you know, your the full extent of your days means is code for you won't know plague, you won't know famine, you won't know war. I was just thinking as I was reading it, it reminded me, unfortunately, of all the horrible destruction of ancient artifacts that's going on now. Seems like nothing's changed. <laughs> so, say more. Like, what? Um, what's the connection for you? ISIS and Syria, and they're going in, and these just priceless antiquities that they just have no regard for, and they're smashing and destroying history. So, they need an angel. So this is right this this is common in the in the ancient near east it was common to worry most about that to worry most about war. Right? So populations start to shift so that what we're seeing happening is a crisis um by um David Siegel, the consul general of Israel says that the Syrian crisis is really about um, water, right? Really about really about the population not having what it needs and therefore starts to push right out and that that this is this is not just a political issue. And in the ancient Near East, if you had a drought in one area, that population has to leave. They have to go where there's food. We see that with Joseph's family, right? So they have to leave. Well, if you need to go somewhere else, guess what? Somebody's already living there. So if a population is pushing out because of a crisis where they are, they're going into where somebody else already is. That's war. So all of the things that happen in the ancient world trigger war because it's a competition for resources. Um, so what, it wasn't even just something happens and y'all get in a fight. It's the reality of the world was there was likely to be a problem somewhere that then pushes that population out and causes a whole regional series of battles. And so it was, you were very concerned about living in a time where your children would be carried off by the enemy. Yes. It's been troubling for me that we always talk about not having 
um, that our God is not a punishing God. And in so many... Who says that? That's the um, kind of feeling that comes comes down. But, I mean, what I was going to say was that you keep reading if you do this, and that life will be good, but if you do bad things, it's not going to be great. Buds will come, and this will happen, and so forth and so forth. It's such an important uh, part of our uh, readings that it's included in our daily uh, morning service. There's a prayer that says, if you do this, or if you don't do this, this will happen. And it's, I don't know, it's always bothered me. I guess maybe I need another explanation, and I know that you say that it's the people who bring on... what, you know, the, the problems that we have. So I just wonder. So you're talking about the Shema, right? One paragraph yeah, of the and Shema. And the prayer, the readings that come after it. Talks about um, if you do these things, right, it will go well for you. And if you don't, it won't. Um, the Reconstructionist Prayer Book puts an alternative reading there, an alternative biblical reading there, because we want to move away from this idea of if you follow my laws, it will go well with you. And if you don't, right, it's going to be, I will deliver bad things upon you. So the Reconstructionist movement wanted to move away from that theology. So there is an alternative biblical passage that we have in our prayer book. Having said that, looking at the traditional understanding. So when you say, I mean, I wasn't being smart alecky when I said, when you said we don't like have a punishing God, it's like, well, who doesn't? Torah certainly understands that there are consequences for not keeping the covenantal commitments. That God will deliver punishment and does deliver punishment according to, right, Torah. What we do with that is something different, obviously, and it goes to exactly what you said, that the reconstructed version of it is when we behave in ways that are lined up with greed and selfishness and consumption and more, 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 more and unconscious consumption and all of that, there are dire consequences. We don't have, many of us, in Reconstructionist Judaism anyway, we don't have a being Right, that is God who says, Oh, because you're doing X, I'm going to deliver Y punishment. We do believe that the world is set up according to certain rules, right? And when we poison the water, the kids downstream are going to have birth defects. So that there are consequences for our behavior and that when we live in line with what we would call godliness and living lives of holiness and making choices based on those ideals, things go better for us and for everybody else. Does that make sense? There's no corollary to that, though you can't. I assume that you can't say that people that bad things happen to <coughs> that it's because they fail to do something. Correct. Because we have the child that comes in, or all the we have all those examples. So that's Correct. The, that's the confusing part, I think. But that that so so talk to me about what's confusing, because like I'm not confused. So well, you're saying if you follow these rules things will go better. So what about the person that follows all those rules and then they have to... The, those are not related. If we don't poison the water, we will prevent the birth defects that come from toxins in children's bloodstreams. We know that. That has nothing to do with the fact that children get leukemia. Those are two different things. Yes, if we live in godly ways and follow the laws of holiness, things will go better for us. We know that. And terrible things are still going to happen. Right, that's the... the terrible thing. things still happen. We, we're human, right? So no one, no one looks outside and agonizes. Why is that tree dying? Why that one? 
Nobody asks that question. We only ask it when it's a human being or our dog. You know, what is interesting is that when people do really bad things and bad things are happening, you know, there still is that ray of goodness that comes out. So in war and killing and terrible things, there's always someone who's providing that act of kindness. So just like when people are doing good and you hope good things are happening, bad stuff still happens. And when people are doing bad and there's a lot of evil in this world, you can still grasp that there's there's some goodness that still fights, tries to fight through. So do you do you see yeah, no, where I'm going? Right. So we because we we're 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 human. We're frail. We're creatures of this planet that have certain rules that govern it. Cancer cells want to survive, right? So we look at, God forbid, a child with leukemia, right, and are devastated. But the cancer cells are happy. I mean, if cancer cells are happy, right? Like, we, we're frail, we're fragile, we're of this planet, and it has its own things going on in it that we are vulnerable to. That's a fact, we can't do anything to change that other than pursue science and medicine and whatever that gives us now genetically tailored chemo to save that child's life. We agonize because it's a person, right? We, but we get it that, you know what I mean? A tree gets disease and dies. We, we agonize and want to, I guess my point is we want to ask why exactly. when it's a child. We don't ask that about the tree out there. How come? Because we assign meaning to the child's illness that we don't assign to root rot. Why? Right? I mean, so when I ask why, it's why do we do that? Because why is the wrong question when you're looking at a sick child? Why is not, there is no answer to that question because there is no why. It's the same reason the tree dies. We're human. We're fragile. We're of a planet where cancer cells invade healthy bodies. Period. Right? That That's the why. Why? Because we're human. But there's another part to it. It's like there's something symbolic about it. If I know somebody's bad, I know they're a bad person. They, they have evil thoughts. They have evil intentions. They even have evil acts. And then they get sick. I think to myself... That's the consequence of their evil behavior and nature. But because, just because, right, but because we go there doesn't mean anything about what's real. Well, we try and find out, but to me it becomes very real. I mean, as an individual, and you see somebody who's done terrible things in their lives, and and they're getting away with it, and then one day you hear that they, you know, they're deadly ill. Hmm. But you can't have it both ways. Right, exactly. So either you can be happy, you can be happy that they are deathly ill, right? You can say, yes! Um, but, but you can't assign, you can't assign causality to them being bad and being deathly ill now without, like Laura says, doing the same for an eight-year-old. Well, but I mean, the human mind can go there. Hundred percent, the human mind can go there. You see, that's why you've got to be good. (laughs) But I mean, I guess maybe it's my line of work. But I I see way too much the other. I I see way too many good people that have horrible things happen to them. Really good people. I see way more of that than I do. I almost said it. I almost said Trump. But like, like, I see way more of good people having horrible things happen to them than I do bad people having horrible things. You know what I'm saying? Like, and maybe it's because there's more good people. Spoken like a true optimist, Laura, Robert. (laughs) Yeah. I was just sort of going a different, in a different direction. Okay, Robert's talking. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I remember what I was going to say. Um, I just go back to the time when this was written, and I'm assuming the people who wrote it really did believe that there was causality. Because it was the best they could do to understand yes. what was going on in the world. Yes. 
Um, and unfortunately, they did believe that if the woman, if the person was barren, God caused it. And on the other hand, if miraculously they became fertile after a long time, God caused that too. Uh, but that was 3,000 years ago, and we've sort of moved on and have to reinterpret this. Right. So our our religious ideals and ideas, thank God, have evolved. And to be clear, lots of people still oh, yes. go here, right? Like lots of people still live in a world of it must be that God made this happen for good or for ill. Um and I'm very proud to be part of progressive Judaism that says our ideas evolve and we no longer right hold to this idea that it is a being in the sky who decides and delivers, you know, good or bad on people. They operated on that premise. They, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Diane? Now, I was going to say that you, you have to think also in terms of a universal way to think about the Holocaust. So what's happening right now in Syria, all these families, the children dying, so on, all around the world. They have to, I think what it meant for us is to be more mindful of what we do and what we say and how we act. Because there's consequences to it. But it's not only in Judaism. I think it's a universal thought that we need to bring people to consciousness. That's okay. That's my my take on it. Okay. Because if I only think of judge being punishing, I mean, I, want any, I don't want any part of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's my, my, my taking because so many people were judging the Holocaust as something that, you know, maybe, you know, some Jews that I know that, you know, we, we did something wrong. Well, it's because we didn't keep Shabbos and gay marriage. That That's why the Holocaust happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So as soon as you go there, as soon as you go to, it happened because we're in trouble. Right? We're in big trouble. Right. Yes, Margo. Say, uh, many years ago, um, when, when I was part of the um, I worked for the movement uh, for several years as an outreach person. And I was always proselytizing. <laughs> and when I went, I was on jury duty with an Iranian Jewish woman. And we we had a lot of time in between. And we were talking together um, about... This needs uh, to be a short play. This needs to be a one-act play. <laughs> I'll, I'll be fast. And she wanted to read some materials about um, Reconstructionism. So I brought in several of our magazines that we had at the time and all that. And her comment was that everything sounds great to me, she says, but don't take away my God. And that was her, and I just always remembered that comment. And, and that's, that's how the more traditional um, Jewish or or anybody, right? So so or or anybody, right, who has a god to which they relate as a being, who hears me, who takes in what I say, and then who's going to act in my life in, in a way that I'm very attached to, right? So um this is what it means to be truly respectful of other people's theologies and other people's traditions is to say we tend to judge, right, that, you know, like, I'm not saying you were saying that, Robert, but like, you know, we're like, oh, you know, we've evolved, that, those are my words, we've evolved from here. And, and we, we very often slide into, therefore, you have not evolved, right? And we fail to respect the ways that a different theology, a different conception of the divine is very powerful for people. And is really important, right, for them. We, you know, we tend. I mean, what I hear you saying is you learned something about the meaning of that God in her life. That it was really important that that not go away, <laughs> right? And and that's true. It's so true. And, and and it's very hard for us to often truly respect what that means in someone's life. And I have a real problem with it. I'll admit it openly. Uh, over a podcast. Um, I have a problem with it, with really respecting it and being fine with it because of the implications for me. R- right? So 
if you have your theology and it's private and you have your relationship with your being who decides and acts in your life, that's one thing. The minute you're going to tell me and that God says, Amy, you and Judy can't live together or have children, God forbid, right? That's where I really struggle with. There are implications for the rest of us that come with that particular God um, that I find really really problematic and really troubling. If it, if it were just a private belief and a private thing, 100% I understand. Look, I, I grew up in a traditional community. I very much miss that God. I will tell you, frankly, I miss the God of that community a lot. But this is where I always have to say that, that community, it's not this community or that community. I'm talking about my experience with my community that still has that God concept. I miss the God of that particular community that I grew up in. And I totally respect that. And you and I have the exact same feeling of what you just said. I respect it a lot. But all I'm saying is that even if there's not, you know, reconstructionist or progressive and orthodox, there's all these very, even within the Orthodox community, they're struggling with different... Of course. You know, so, of course. And, and on the flip side, even in the Reconstructionist movement, the Reconstructionists haven't thrown out God. Of course. It's kind of a different perception of Absolutely. God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Things we're talking about, acting properly and the consequences and all of that, that's enmeshed in you know a sort of God-faith-based set of values that we're studying. So. Absolutely. Yes. That, obviously. <coughs> yes. I think I, a very quick story is germane to what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, my father came to business when we were living in Phoenix. We were members of a reformed congregation. And I took him to services. He'd never been there before. And when it was all done, I, we were going home. I said, well, Pop, what do you think? It's better than nothing. (laughs) 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 All right, good. So we're we're doing better than nothing. Excellent. Um, And and Mario, I just want to be clear that I did not mean one act play, meaning you needed to hurry. I meant truly. I meant I would love to see a, a play. Uh-huh. A reconstructionist outreach person, right, at the largest reconstructionist synagogue in the world is on jury duty with an Iranian Jew, and they have a lot of time on their hands between court sessions to talk. I would love to see that written, right, as a play. I, I would love to see that. I think it would be fantastic. All right, so, um, all right, where are we? Verse, what, 27? Right, so so we're getting the warning against um, in any way participating in the religion of the locals, right? So their pillars, meaning that which for them represents their God, I will smash, says Yerevave, right? So don't y'all in any way be seduced into any form, any kind of worship, that is of the local people, of the Canaanites, right? Okay. Are we at 27? Yes. Okay, somebody read. I will send forth my terror before you, and I will throw into panic all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn rail, pale before you. I will send a plague ahead of you, and it shall drive out before you the Hevites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply to your hurt. I will drive them out before you little by little until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your borders from the Sea of Reeds to the Sea of Philistia and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hands and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not remain in your land, lest they cause you to sin against me. For you will serve their gods, and it will prove a snare to you. I just love when Elena reads. I just love that. (laughs) Um, She could read the phone book, and I'd be, like, so moved. So... 
Um, so every time we hear this language, like we, you know, those of us who are contemporaries go, ah, right? Like we have to remember it never happened. The conquest never happened, right? So you will get rid of all of them, lest it be a snare to you. It never happened. There was no conquest, right? Israelite culture, Israelite religion grew in Canaan. It came out of Canaanite religion, Canaanite peoples. Was there a foreign influence? Probably. Something comes in, right, that influences and changes Canaanite. The situation, nobody's clear what that is. Lots of us have interesting theories. Lots of us are excited about that research, but nobody knows. The important thing for me, whenever I read these, is to remember this is the new religion on the scene talking about the dominant religion of the time. Is this the description of the uh, actual uh, area of Canaan? Yes. What, what do they mean by the wilderness? So if you go to Israel, when you come down to the middle of the country, it's when you reach Beersheba. Beersheba is ha. Huh, what did he just say? Beersheba is south. Beersheba is smack in the middle of Israel. Gaza is south. Gaza is south. A lot is south. But do you? Why am I pointing to Reuben? Because that's how we think. Beersheba is south because it's the southernmost habitable part of Israel. It's smack in the middle of the country. So, right. So the minute you get below Beersheba, you're talking about a very harsh environment, right? And and so what, so the descriptors, now, now where they're pointing to exactly, I don't know, but I'm saying there's lots of choice for what wilderness becomes. Right below Beersheba, and then the Mediterranean and the and the river. Right, we we have a so lots. There's a whole field of study looking at every time we get a descriptor of the borders of Israel. There's a whole field where they they take this right description and say where exactly would that place the borders, And, and we watch. We watch it go like this. You know, if you if you lay all those out on a map, it goes like this, right? You know. You're talking about Syria and part of Iraq, So the Golan Heights. Yeah. Right. Still, that area is the borders are in dispute. Still. I can see where the Orthodox settler movement, when they come to this, correct. Uh-huh. Correct. This is what justifies. Correct. What we, yeah. what when people want to, right, come to God gave it to us. It's ours by divine fiat. They they look for borders here, um, and they look at when I said there's a whole field of study about looking at you know where the borders are and how they ch- they go to the broadest possible description. Right, they they go to the biggest one, which I think is describing um, Solomon's Israel. If I'm not wrong, I don't know though. But right, so they they not only go here, they go to the biggest possible one here in in Torah. Um, wait, I was going to say one more thing. Well, we're at, uh, but I forgot. Twenty-four here. We're at twenty. We're at twenty-four. Right, right, right. Thank you, thank you. So, um, so it didn't. It, it grew. Israelite religion came out of the region of Canaan. Um, the material culture, everything is consistent with it coming from Canaanite, you know, um, culture. When you have a new movement, right, you have to have very strong language about not going back to the dominant when you're the new religion in town when you're the new thing in town you have to use very strict language right and very clear threats to 
to have people not go back to what's really easy, which is the dominant normal normative tradition of the region. There has never, and it says, you know, you will, because if you don't get rid of them, if you don't kick them all out, you will sin against me. You will serve their gods and it will prove a snare to you. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, it never happened. And there is not one single period in archaeological history. They have not uncovered one period in which there were not Canaanite gods in Israelite homes. Is that clear? So this is written way after the imagining of these events. It's written way after by a people trying to understand the exile. A people trying to understand what happened. Right? So this is retrojected. If you don't get rid of those Canaanites, you're going to backslide. Well, that's exact. We, we have little Canaanite gods, right? In every single period of Israelite occupation of the, of the land. Um, so. Meaning they had to stop worshiping those gods even when they were. Me- meaning they never stopped worshiping those gods, right? They they always had a little statue of Asherah somewhere, right? Right. So. They were Yahwists. We're, we're with this whole Yudhevavhe business. One God, one, and in the corner, in in the spare bedroom, is a little Asherah. It's an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy, <laughs> right? So, so the way they make sense later of things, calamities, right, that happened is because the people who wrote this book are saying it's because you had an Asherah in the spare bedroom. That's how all this happened, right? And it's retrojected onto the desert wandering. Get rid of them lest you be ensnared by their gods. You better put that Buddha back in the closet. Exactly right. Exactly right. Syncretistic worship, right, is what it's called. Um, there's even in southern... Um, in the southern Sinai, they found, I did my paper on this when I was in school in Beersheba. Um, there is a, a thing that they found on a cave wall that says it's dedicated to yud Hey vav Hey, the Asherato, and his Asherah. Wow. Right? So. That's clever. <laughs> so, even yud Hey had Asherah as a consort in some circles, uh, right? So. We're going to close uh, with 24 because Rabbi El Shai has some interesting things to say about this next bit. So somebody read 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Moses then wrote down all the commands of the Lord. Early in the morning, he set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took one part of the blood and put it in basins, and the other part of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the record of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will faithfully do. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord now makes with you concerning all these commands. Go on. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel ascended, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Yet he did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Okay. So this is a covenanting ceremony. The covenant is read. 
the people assent, and then they eat. This is very Jewish. <laughs> yes? If you're going to have a really important something going on, you got to eat. It is this old, it is this ancient <laughs> that you eat when something of critical importance is happening um, vis-a-vis the people and God and right religion and all of that. So, very interesting uh, imagery here. Um, so I have a ring, which I meant to wear today, um, that is a... We're out. We have 20 copies. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of cars here, so I thought we wouldn't have a lot of people. So I can make uh, more copies. So if you'll share with each other now, if you want to take one home, I'm happy to make more copies. Um, I have a ring that's a star sapphire, right? So sapphire, when we see sapphire, we tend to think of the stone that's been polished in a certain way to make it that really, really, really dark blue. But if you don't do that to the stone, right, it is the color of the sky right now. Um, so that that's this um, this sapphire, right, that looks like the very sky um, for purity. So if, if you're looking uh, at the teaching of Rabbi Yael Shai on this, she's quoting verses 9, 10, and 11. In these verses, after Moses delivers the words of law to the Israelites and the Israelites promise to do and to hear, Moses, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and 70 elders are so spiritually open and aware that they walk a ways up the mountain. Once there, they perceive or see or gaze at God. They eat and drink and the powerful God energy to which they have opened does not kill them. Right? Because usually... Right, it said only Moshe comes up because otherwise, right, it's nuclear and you are not in the right gear and it will kill you. But something seems to happen that they go up, they experience the divine and don't die. Now, what's gonna happen to Nadav and Avihu later? Yeah. Exactly. So um but in this case, right, they draw close and nothing happens. So so Rabbi Shai is saying, hmm? very nice. Hold on to that. When we come to that story, let's hold on to that possible interpretation, right? So Lisa's suggesting if they go and they experience God and they're hanging out with God, maybe that informs their decision later that winds up being fatal, Right? And then how does that change what the story's coming to teach? Right? Because it does. It changes if your interpretation, if we go with your interpretation, that story is coming to teach something very specific. Right? Alright. Why is it mentioned that God doesn't kill them? Was feasting at that moment of spiritual awe inappropriate? What were they actually doing perceiving God while eating and drinking? Robert Schwartz argues that the verse God did not lay its hand is in the text, not because what the elders did was wrong, but because death was narrowly avoided through the feasting. By eating and drinking in this moment of radical awe and openness, the elders fused the physical and the spiritual in a way that anchored them to their bodies and to life. Is this like so Jewish? Is this so Jewish? It is not. It was not only proper, says Schwartz, but obligatory that the elders ate and drank to celebrate receiving the Torah. But their feast was a spiritual one. They ate the peace offerings, sanctified food that was eaten with spiritual concentration. Receiving the Torah was such an intense spiritual experience that were it not anchored to physicality, those present would likely have yearned so deeply for God that their souls would have left their bodies. Lisa, to your interpretation of Nadav and Avihu, some want to go that that's what happened. Nadav and Avihu were so hooked on the divine and the encounter with the divine that they wanted to disappear from their bodies and they did that God gave them what they wanted which was to be consumed by the divine and that that is not what 
we are about. This is what we're about. That we are not a people that looks for spiritual experiences that are going to completely take us out of the body, out of the physical, so that we can unite with the divine and hang out there. That is not the goal. And bring a snack. And bring a snack. (laughs) Always have a snack. snack. All right, says the mom. The Jewish mother is right here. The Jewish mother? So say more about that, Laura. Well, I mean, it's just kind of funny. Like, you know, we're always, eat, have some more. And here it is. If you don't, look what happens. If you don't eat, I mean, I'm serious about this. Yeah, I mean, the Jewish mother says, S, S, eat. <laughs> Why? So you can live from a land where they starved. So they came from a land where they starved. So part of it is you have what to eat. So eat. Right? Because we know what it is not to have enough to eat. And Sarah says, um, brilliantly, eat so that you live. We are a people that is deeply connected to living, to life. We are not a people that says all of this is preparation for the world to come. All of this is preparation for the afterlife, right? This we have to get through so that we can sit at the right hand of God after we die. We, that is not Jewish. Yes, yes, we should reach and long for, and be in relationship to, and want to hang out with the divine. Absolutely. And bring a snack. Eat. Because you want to live. Living is good. Life is good. Right? This um, To this next piece, Schwartz uses a Lubavitcher Rebbe's analogy of a candle with a flame that constantly strives upwards while its base keeps it tethered to the world. The souls of the elders at this powerful moment had the desire to fly out of their bodies. But the eating and drinking integrated the experience in their bodies and helped them to stay radically present. I think that's about Christianity. You just go to a church or you're considered that it's always about after. It's never about right here. Whereas I was raised so much to be here and do things here that were important. Maybe the most powerful example of a religious experience while eating is Pesach. Mm-hmm. Yes. The whole thing is just designed to uplift and take you back to the desert, to every place that we were. So that is, for us, the paradigmatic religious experience is sitting around a table, telling a story, and eating that story. Right? Who I forget who it was who said, you know, at Passover, Jews eat history. We, we, we eat, we taste our history. And then, halachma'anya, this is the bread of affliction, taste it. This is the maror of slavery. Taste it. It should hurt. I always tell people, don't just take a little bit of the red stuff. <laughs> You're also fill the mitzvah, right? It should hurt. Because what we're doing, right? We should taste the pain of slavery because that brings us to this is the bread of our liberation. This, then we eat the afikoman, then, right, we complete the Seder with dessert as we recline and finish the fourth cup and we sing. That You can't get to the one without the other and we have to taste it. But yet we have Yom Kippur where you have to fast. Betach. So who, who does a fast better than the Jews? Nobody. <laughs> we attach so much meaning and value to eating. That when Jews don't eat for 24 hours, it is a big flipping deal. 
right? Like we, when we fast, holy buckets, right? It is a serious, serious business. Um, and that's why, and I'm being very serious. That's why that fast is so meaningful to me. Because we never do that. I mean, there's lots more fast days, by the way, in our tradition than Yom Kippur. But they start in the morning and end at sundown, like Ramadan. Um, but but that's why Yom Kippur is such a big deal, because we don't do that, right? We don't refrain from eating as a religious experience. We eat as a religious experience. Think of Shabbos. Think of our ancestors who had nothing but made sure for Shabbos there was something on the table. There was something special on the table. That That's how we experience like religious um, <laughs> the language center just shut down. Um, you know, religious moments and religious experiences, it's, it's with eating. So when we refrain on Yom Kippur, it is, it is a magnificent thing that we all do that. Laura? Um, not to be funny about the bringing snack. But, but no, I, I, <laughs> I think what's beautiful about it is that it reminds us that both the spiritual and the physical are holy and divine and that we should enjoy. There's lots of crimes when that comes up that, you know, bodies are amazing. But also, <coughs> I was thinking about what you were saying, we eat our story and, and humans as babies discover things through their mouth all the time. Like they, you can't keep a baby from eating dirt. Whatever you put in their hands, the first thing that happens is it goes in the mouth because that's the most sensory, direct way of finding out what something is. Right. And that we don't choose to try to move away from that. Right? We're like Labrador retrievers. I just put it in your mouth so you can figure out what it is. Right? We we don't try to move away from that is what I I really appreciate about our tradition. One of the things I so appreciate about our tradition is that it doesn't denigrate the body. Remember that the split between the spiritual and put air quotes for those of you at home, spiritual and air quotes, um, that the split between that and the material is a Greek split. Are we clear about that? This idea that the idea of table and actual table being very different is a Greek idea. The Jews predate that split and never bought it. So the denigration of the material over the idea, the ideal, is a Greek concept that Jews never bought. For us, they are together. There, there is no denigrating of the material, of the physical, of the body for some abstract ideal of the mind, the spirit. There is no such thing in Judaism. We are Westerners, and so we are deeply influenced by that split and by that divide. It is not Jewish. So we're going to go to close to uh, the last page of your commentary. And I'm going to ask Sarah for you to read uh, what Rabbi Shai brings us, which is Norman Fisher's interpretation of a Zen blessing before eating food. As we make ready to eat this food, we remember with gratitude the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all turning in the wheel of living and dying, whose joyful exertion, not separate from ours, provides our sustenance this day. May we, with the blessing of this food, join our hearts to the one heart of the world in awareness and love. And may we, together with everyone, realize the path of awakening and never stop making effort for the benefit of others. I'm going to ask that we take this kavanah into Shabbat, into whatever meal it is that we're enjoying, whatever hot bath we're enjoying, whatever holding hands with our 
people that we love in our life, having our dogs on our laps, whatever it is uh, that we move into as physical uh, embodied beings, I'm going to ask that we hold this intention and this attention um, to the beauty and the longing for that to be so for everyone in this world, as I wish you Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.